Good morning. Boy, you all look good today. I'm proud of you. I may kiss a man before the day's over. I don't know. We had a good day yesterday. I want to thank everybody who worked hard. I know it was very hard. I know a lot of people were involved. I know Amber's heavy, heavily involved. She's constantly on the run, as well as others. But uh, thank you so much for making great memories for our children. They'll, uh, they'll remember you well when they get older. Uh, we are entering into a study on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I'd like to uh, do a little bit more on an introduction. I'm going to talk kind of fast. Uh, I think it's very important to understand the setting, why Jesus was teaching the things he was teaching, and uh, that's what I hope to uh, help you see today. Moses uh, established a religion in Israel. God gave a law through Moses, and uh, the, the, the major part of the law was a moral law. There was a moral bar that was set that was given for the Israelites to live by, and the Israelites would be a light to the rest of the world. Uh, they would know what good and bad was by the way the Israelites lived. That was the intention. That was the theory behind it. Well, for a while, the Israelites did very well. Throughout the life of Joshua and the elders who outlived Joshua, the Israelites stayed very true to the law of Moses. Then, however, things took a downturn. People became uh, less concerned with the law, and uh, there were abuses that took place. One of the things that uh, would happen occasionally was that there would be a revival. People would uh, return to God's law, usually because there was a good king. Now, this is something that only happened about three, maybe four times in Israel's history where someone, a king, was a good person, a moral person, and because of his uh, life and ways, there was a revival that occurred in Israel. But the revival was short-lived, maybe one, maybe two generations. And then it would start downhill again. The, uh, the revivals took place only in Judah, Judah was a very large tribe. There was a small tribe attached to it, Benjamin. But Benjamin was so small and insignificant that uh, Judah became uh, the name that everybody recognized these people by. This is where we get the term Jew from, short for Judah. Uh, the Jews on three, maybe four occasions had a revival but during the revival, they never did get back up to that moral bar again. They went in that direction, but they never got back to the moral bar that God established through Moses originally. And then after the revival, things would take a downturn. The divided kingdom, we need to understand that we do it very quickly. 
the intention of God was that the nation of Israel would be one nation under God. That was the intention. It lasted for about 120 years. And then Solomon's boy, Rehoboam, who wasn't much of a king, he caused a great division to take place. The ten tribes to the north of the kingdom, they rebelled and they separated themselves from Judah. So you wound up having two kingdoms. One was the northern kingdom of Israel. The other one was the kingdom of Judah, known as the Jews, of course. Israel was, uh, as I said, a compilation of ten tribes. The thing is about Israel, Israel never did have a revival. She departed from the divine pattern, and she never looked back. She went uh, continuously away from God until finally the Lord allowed the Assyrians to take her captive. The Israelites were carried off into the Assyrian Empire, and they were dispersed throughout the empire. And it was only a matter of time until the northern kingdom became virtually unknown, non-existent. And all that was left was Judah of God's people. Judah continued on a downward climb. They lasted about 100 years after the northern kingdom was taken captive. And then they too were taken captive. They had moved too far away from God. God allowed the Babylonians to come in and conquer them and to take them as prisoners into Babylon. They went there. They spent 70 years in Babylon. And at the end of 70 years, the Lord allowed them to come back to Jerusalem, those who wanted to. Only a small group came back. The rest of them didn't want to. They stayed in Babylon. Life was good. They had built their schools, their factories. They had their grocery stores, their Walmarts. They were established in Babylon. They decided to stay there, and a remnant returned to Jerusalem. Well, this remnant was determined to be faithful to God, to not repeat the mistake of their ancestors. No more captivities. They wanted God to be their God for the duration. And they purposed to do so. This was the time when a group known as the Pharisees was, uh, came into existence. Pharisee means separatist. They intended to be separated from the world, uh, unlike their ancestors, and live with God. And did. They did a good job, actually, for a while. And then, as human nature is prone to do, they started once again on a downhill climb until at last Jesus came into the world. Now, Paul tells us in Galatians 4 and 4, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son. Jesus came into the world because the time was right. Everything was as it needed to be for the Son of God to come in and establish his kingdom. And that's what took place when Christ did come into the world. But there's a lot of things 
that brought him into the world. I want to discuss just a couple. But keep this verse in mind, Galatians 4 and 4, because we'll recall it in just a moment. Paul tells us in Romans 11:26 that Jesus came to turn away ungodliness from Jacob. He was going to try to turn the Jews back to God. They never had got back to that moral bar that God had set. And Jesus came into the world to try to accomplish what no prophet had been able to accomplish. And that brings us to the Sermon on the Mount. This is why he preached the Sermon on the Mount. This was his intention in preaching it. When people heard this man speak, they thought they were hearing a new philosophy to live by. And it appeared to be a new philosophy. It was completely different than the law that the Jews lived by. As a matter of fact, the scribes and the Pharisees, they thought that Jesus was preaching a strange teaching, something unlike anything they had ever heard before. But the fact of the matter is what our Lord preached wasn't new at all. He was preaching a very, very old philosophy, one that they should have been familiar with, but they were not. What Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount is what Moses had taught some 1,400 years ago. He was teaching the exact same law. It hadn't changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The moral law that he gave through Moses was the moral law that he gave through Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It was the same thing Moses had said. But they didn't recognize it because they had moved too far away from truth. So when they heard the truth, they thought he was their enemy. And ultimately, they murdered him for being the enemy. Our Lord, before he separated from Israel, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you, you were not willing. I tried time and time and time. I sent preacher after preacher after preacher. They taught lesson after lesson after lesson. And no matter how much talking I did to you, he's saying, you still were unwilling to come to me. And because of that, he said, your house is left to you desolately. Desolate. It was God's house, or the house of God. Not now, though. It's your house, the Jews' house. And there was a reason. The house now was desolate. In what way? God had forsaken the Jews. He wasn't there anymore. He wasn't their God anymore. He wasn't their protector. And he certainly was not their savior. They didn't want to listen to God, so God turned them loose. And he would have nothing more to do with them. Today's preacher says, oh, that can't be the case. These are the people of God. God wouldn't turn his back on his own people. Listen to the preacher on TV. I guarantee it you'll hear it very soon when you turn them in and listen to what they have to say. But listen to what God has said in the past. There is so much to keep in mind. In Genesis chapter 15, God gave Abraham a promise of a land. He said, look, Abraham, at all the land out there, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. This will be their land. This will be the nation that they build. For from you will come a great 
nation. But before he could give them that land, they were going to have to go into Egyptian bondage. They were going to spend, oh, about 200 years in Egypt in total from the time he spoke to Abraham, about 400 years into the future. And when that time comes, Abraham, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. They were in Egypt, but when the time is right, I'll bring them back here. I'll give them this land that I promised you. Why, God? Why wait 400 years before you bring my descendants into the land? Abraham could have asked. He didn't. But one wonders why it took so long to give them this land. And God tells us, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Iniquity, the sin. The sins of the Amorites is not complete. In the Greek text, you got their cup of iniquity was not yet full. Their cup of sin was not yet full. You can think of it like a cup of coffee that gets full and then begins to run over. What the Lord is saying is that when the cup of the Amorites gets full, then I'll bring your descendants back to this land. There will be war. They will destroy the Amorites who don't deserve to live any longer. And then this land will be their property. When Jesus came into the world, this is where the Jews were. Their cup of sin was full. They had crossed the line of no return. And it was time for Israel to cease to exist. And Jesus said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. There are several reasons that brought Jesus into the world. This was one of them. It was time to cut Israel loose. And that's what our Lord came to do. And then some, someone says, well, what about the house of God? God dwelt in that house. If you cut God, Israel off, God has nowhere to dwell. He has no house. Well, that's not true at all. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul said to Timothy, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. It still existed. Where? What is the house of God, Paul? It is the church of Christ that he established, that he built. It's in the church that God dwells. This is the house of God. This is the true house of God. This is the house of God that God planned from the beginning. All the excuses that people use in trying to make a defense that Israel is God's people, they're all wrong. You're God's people. You're God's house. Israel had a mission. She failed. And when the fullness of her time had come, God sent Jesus into the world to cut her loose. The next time when the fullness of the time has come, 
God will send Jesus into the world to raise the dead, to destroy the creation, and to move us into the realm he intended for us to be all along. Do you see, do you see how things are the same? They don't change. You move out of the mosaic into the Christian, and what have you got? The same thing, except for some ceremonial laws that are different. It's all the same thing. Jesus preached in the Sermon of the Mount, and the thing he was going to try to do was to bring the Israelites back to what Moses had originally said, but they would have none of it. They turned their backs on it. The house was left desolate, and God would establish a new house. That's what was going to take place. And that's what Jesus is going to teach in the Sermon on the Mount. He was going to try to help the people understand what the Lord expected out of them. The Beatitudes, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, attitudes that people ought to possess, Beatitudes. This is what we've uh, called them. There are beatitudes throughout the Bible. There are beatitudes in the Old Testament. There's more beatitudes in the New Testament. These are the beatitudes that our Lord uttered as he began his famous Sermon on the Mount. And he was, uh, he was teaching something that appeared very strange to the Israelite people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When you stop and think about this, this makes no sense at all. Blessed means happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are people who mourn. And a person may ask, do you really believe that? Do you believe that the person who's poor in spirit is happy? The person who mourns is happy? Go all the way down the list. And the average person's going to say, these aren't attitudes that demonstrate happiness. These are attitudes that demonstrate misery. What a miserable life to live. What a terrible life for a human being to live. We are to go for the gusto. We are to enjoy ourselves. If we don't have a good time, what's the use of living? What other reason could we possibly be here but to eat, drink, and be merry? This is the philosophy of the world. It's a philosophy that we've been trained to believe. It's a philosophy that's ever before our face. And when you talk about something like the Beatitudes that Jesus uttered, what do you conclude? Yuck! What a horrible way to live. Why would anybody choose to follow such a man. Since the Lord was in the world, that's always been the attitude of most people towards him. You can keep that life. I want to live a better life. King Solomon, he was just like the majority of the world. He could be considered the luckiest man ever lived because he was the guy who had it all. Listen to what Solomon says. He made silver as common in Jerusalem 
as stones. He had 700 wives. He had 300 concubines. Now, he had the best-looking women in the world. These weren't just women he picked up off the street. These were women that come from every nation on the earth. And they were beautiful beyond belief. A concubine was just like a wife, except she had no right to inheritance. So in all, he had a thousand wives, you might say. It would take Solomon three or four years to go through each one of his wives at one time. And men think, oh, baby, you know, what a life to live. The prettiest women in the world, and they all belong to me. And nobody else can touch them. We don't like to say that. But we all know that for a lot of people, this would be a dream come true. He surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. He had more money than anybody on the planet. So he spoke of himself. He said, I became great. I excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my wisdom remained with me. He was extremely wise. A divine gift that he possessed. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. If I could do what Solomon could do, I believe my whole farm would be full of cars and trucks, motorcycles, why anything with an engine. My land would be useless except for housing my property. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Can you imagine? Anything the man wanted, he got, and he wanted everything under the sun. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. Anything I thought would be fun, I did it. My heart rejoiced in all my labor. This was my reward from all my labor. What? My heart rejoicing. Having a good time, living large. Solomon went for the gusto, baby, and he had it. Whatever the man wanted, he got. We're told to go for the gusto. We only live one time. You got to have a good time. Why else would you be here? Solomon did it. Better than anybody did it. But like the rest of us, Solomon got a little older. And as he got a little older, he got a little wiser. Solomon learned that even though you got all this stuff, something's still missing. Something's not right. I can't be satisfied or content. I'm always wanting something else. And Solomon started concluding, I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet, either way, he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled 
in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. That idiot is going to have everything I worked for. And it just irritates me beyond belief. Is what he's saying, basically. This is vanity. Vanity of vanities, he was prone to say. Life is worthless. In Ecclesiastes 12 and 7, the age of Solomon, he probably knew this his whole life. He probably ignored it, though. But he's come to a point in life where he can ignore it no longer. The dust returns to the earth. The spirit returns to God. In that little statement, Solomon makes an observation. And that is the fact that human beings are composite beings. We are body and we are spirit. Solomon got to the point in his life where he finally realized that. And that's a very important thing to learn because that is the beginning of the road to pure happiness. Spiritual things cannot satisfy physical needs. A hungry person doesn't need to hear a sermon on grace. They're still going to be hungry. I'm talking about hungry, hungry, hungry. It's not going to help them. A person in need of emergency medical attention had a heart attack, they're bleeding out, whatever. That person doesn't need to hear a sermon on morality. Wrong time and place. He needs his medical attention. Spiritual things just cannot fulfill physical needs. And I think we're all smart enough to know that. James said, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what good is it? In what way have you helped them? No, spiritual things are good things, but they're not going to help people when they have physical needs. And that's important to understand. The truly spiritual person assists those who have needs in physical ways. However, there's a great danger involved in that, and that is this, trying to meet every need with physical things. And this is where much of religion is today. Faithfulness to Christ guarantees health, wealth, wealth success, prestige, prosperity. It's preached all the time. And old people flock to it in the thousands. They are so enthralled with this message of hope, this message of promise, that as long as I walk with the Lord, I'm going to have all those things I long for. The bribery is appealing, no doubt. But the bribery is not true. Of these things, what can possibly help the person who is depressed or afraid of death, who has no hope, 
and the list goes on. Do you understand the physical things will not help? The spiritual things can't solve a dilemma. It's not a quick fix, despite what the preachers say. Well, just like spiritual things cannot satisfy physical needs, physical things cannot satisfy spiritual needs. And everybody has spiritual needs. For the spiritual need, we need a spiritual solution. Just like for the physical need, we need a physical solution. Food for the belly and belly for the food. Jesus introduces a new way of life. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. This is what the Beatitudes are all about. This is something you want to commit to memory. Because it's the purpose, the reason of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. The Lord's standard of righteousness, which is his standard of happiness, blessed are, is a standard of selflessness. If you want to be happy, if you want true fulfillment, if you want your life to be of value, you must learn to be selfless. And that's what our Lord teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Selflessness is his new way of thinking, which isn't a new way of thinking at all. Oh, it's new to these people because they never listened to Moses. But it was the same thinking that Moses had taught more than 1,400 years earlier. It was what was needed in Moses' day, Jesus' day, and in our day. Human nature doesn't change. We're basically the same as Adam. Our wants, our needs, nothing's changed. We still need food for the belly and hope for the soul. Without either, we cannot live. <clears throat> if then, Paul said, you were raised with Christ. This is the preacher now. You won't find him on the TV. But this is God's preacher speaking. If you were raised with Christ, you are part of his fellowship, his family. Seek those things which are above. Where Christ is, not the TVs, not the cars, the motorcycles, or the boats. Look at the things above, where Christ is, those things he would have you to seek. He's sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on those things, not on the things on the earth. How different Paul's preaching is from the modern preaching. There's no go for the gusto, but self-sacrifice, selflessness. Do not love the world, John said. 
Today it's all about the world. If you want the masses to come, you got to give them some kind of hope. Not in the eternity, that's too far away. They need a hope for today. Food for the belly. And imagine hope for the soul. The world is passing away as well as the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You can hope for the things of this world. You can hope for the things of God. It's your choice. But John's saying, I'm telling you now, if you hope for the things of this world, those things will pass as you do, and you'll have nothing in your hand. The only place to find lasting happiness is with God. And that's what our Lord's sermon is all about. Even Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. How about the word preserve? Whoever desires to preserve his life as it is, I have this and this and this. Whoever desires to keep this and this and this, that person's going to lose his life. Whoever loses his life, whoever surrenders everything he has, denies himself and follows me, this person will find his life. Of course, Jesus is talking about eternal life. If we try to preserve our life in this world, we'll lose our lives eventually. But if we're willing to deny ourselves, live selfless lives, follow the teachings, the instructions that the Son of God followed when he was among us, then eternal life can be ours. It disturbs me when I hear the preachers on the TV because I know what they're saying isn't true. It sounds good. But it's, it's just not true. <clears throat> the Beatitudes are not pronounced, they are pronouncements, not probabilities. And this is very important. Think of the woes of Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites. Because they are hypocrites, they shall be condemned. It's a pronouncement, it's not a probability. Jesus isn't saying because you are hypocrites, you, you might come under condemnation. It's because you are hypocrites that you shall be condemned. Don't doubt me, he's saying. Don't doubt me. Because this is truth. Because you're a hypocrite, you shall suffer the consequences. Now, using that logic and reason, Think about the Beatitudes. Because you are poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful. Because you are a peacemaker, you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For these reasons, you shall be a happy person. Oh, that don't sound right. 
Is Jesus right or wrong? He said it. He taught this to us. I believe he's right. If I want to be happy in this world, I've got to surrender myself to you. I've got to become a servant to you. I've got to wait on you. I need to make sure that you're happy. I need to make sure that you have what you need. I need to make sure that you're protected. Out of danger of any harm. I need to put myself out. For you. Jesus said, John, if you do that, you'll live. And if you're unwilling to do that, you'll die. The Beatitudes is a matter of the heart. That's who we are. It's what we are. When I am selfless, when I am willing to spend to be spent for others, when I make you my priority, then I have righteousness on the inside. That's where it counts. Look at me. I have righteousness on the outside. I even wore a vest today to make my point. I'm a preacher. The real question is, who am I on the inside? Am I poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst, merciful? And the list goes on. As we study the Sermon on the Mount, you need to keep this thought in mind. There's a reason why Jesus preached that sermon. We want to know the reason, and then we want to understand why he taught it. And we shall, God willing. Maybe beginning next week, I, I hope. If you're not a Christian, you, you, have, you are a wonderful, wonderful person. You bear the image of the living God. You're worth more than all the world. I know you don't see it that way, but that's the way God looks at you. That's why Jesus died for you. Because God wants you to be his son or daughter. If you're not a Christian, you're abusing the very reason you were given life in the first place. You will live, you will die, and you will forever and ever find yourself under condemnation with no hope, no God. It's, it's awful. It breaks my heart to think about it. If you are a Christian, you need to examine yourself. I need to examine myself. And you need to examine yourself. Am I righteous on the inside or do I just wear a necktie and a vest? 
Am I just an empty suit? Only I can answer that question. God's already answered it. Don't lose your soul. Only you can prevent it. I feel like Smokey the Bear saying that. But only you can prevent it. If you want to obey the gospel, you need to believe in Christ. Repent of your sins. Be immersed in water for forgiveness. That's when God forgives sin. And then be your brother's keeper. And you will know fulfillment. I'm happier now than I've ever been in my life. It's true. These things make you happy.